The following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. You can message us at threestrands.church slash contact. So, uh, hey, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series called Cliff Notes. Show of hands real quick. And if you were here last week, you should definitely know this unless you were sleeping during the sermon. But show of hands real quick. Who knows what Cliff Notes are? What Cliff Notes are? Yeah, all right. Still, still about a third of us that don't. So either you weren't here last week or you were asleep, Abby. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Abby. So, uh, okay, Cliff Notes. Yeah, it's these short little like summations of books to kind of give you the highlights so you can cheat really is what they are, so you can not do your homework and then still be ready for the exam the next day or, or help you write a paper without actually reading the whole book. But, and so we're looking at these moments in the Bible where people were on top of mountains, and uh, I don't know, just something about being on top of a mountain, and, uh, and God kind of shows up and he does something cool in their life, or he gives them some kind of uh, new revelation, or, or he kind of opens their eyes to see him in a brand new way, or their relationship with him kind of changes from that point forward. They're mountaintop moments, right? And uh, in, in kind of traditional Christianity, you might hear Christians say this, like, oh, I just had a mountaintop experience or something like that. And, and uh, this is what they're talking about. They don't really mean they were necessarily on top of a mountain. Now, you could be on top of a mountain for one of these, but you don't necessarily have to be on top of a mountain. But this is my definition for a mountaintop moment. You can jot this down. This will help you for the rest of the series, right? But it's a, just a time of spiritual clarity where the distractions of life fade away and the realities of God's presence kind of come into clearer or greater or sharper focus, right? And so uh, you don't have to be on a mountain for that. God can show up anywhere in your life and kind of uh, reveal something to you or open your eyes to something you hadn't seen before, or change your perspective or the way you think. And, and uh, these can be mountaintop experiences, even if you're in the valley or even if you're in a, a building or something like that. There's all kinds of these all throughout the Bible. And we're just looking at four of them in this series, four different moments where people were on top of a mountain and God kind of showed up and did something kind of cool or amazing. But all throughout the Bible, these moments exist, uh, not even on the mountain. Like you think about like Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah had a mountaintop moment, right? But he didn't have it on top of a mountain. He had it in the belly of a big fish, right? And he's in the belly. Of, sometimes you got to kind of be in the belly of a big fish before you realize like you need to wake up and do things God's way. And so he had this kind of um, change in thinking about the way he was interacting with God. And, and King David had a moment like that, but it wasn't on a hillside or on top of a mountain. It was the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him on his sin. And, and then David went off by himself for several days and just prayed and repented, right? And so it was like a mountaintop moment, like a, a realization where the distractions of life kind of faded away and the realities of God's presence and who God is kind of became more clear in their mind, right? Uh, you go to the New Testament, Peter had a mountaintop moment, but it wasn't on a mountaintop, it was on a rooftop, right? And God shows up and gives Peter a vision, he says, I have this vision to, to change the whole world through people like you, Peter, and I'm going to take my good news now, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And it totally changed the way Peter thought for the rest of his life about the good news message of Jesus. And he was willing to let Gentiles accept it and receive it and be part of it. Going forward, you go to the cross and you see a Roman soldier at the cross was just standing there doing his duty. And he had a mountaintop moment where he looks at Jesus on the cross and he says, surely this man must be the son of God, right? And so you can have these kind of moments, these, I don't know, realizations where you wake up, a spiritual kind of awakening inside of you. 
You can have those on a mountaintop, but you can have them anywhere in your life. And so uh, we're just kind of singling out four different accounts from the Bible where people were on top of mountains for these to happen. I remember one in my own life. I can remember several moments like that in my own life. A lot of times those tend to happen, uh, and maybe you can um, kind of relate to this, but a lot of times these kind of moments tend to happen in waiting rooms. If you're in the waiting room at a hospital, a lot of times you have a little realization of who Jesus is, don't you? If you're waiting to go into battle, you know, if you're at the doctor's office waiting for a diagnosis, there's something about kind of that waiting that kind of makes you wake up a little bit, you know. And if you want to see somebody have a mountaintop moment, just find them in the emergency room waiting room while one of their kids is being in the intensive care unit looked at. And they'll be having a mountaintop moment right there asking God to help them. They might have not asked God to help them for the last 10 months. But in that moment, the distractions of life all cleared out and the reality of God's presence came into sharper focus. And they realized, I need God's help. It's those kind of moments. I remember one of those from my own life sitting on this large rock right outside of Jackson Hall on the campus that Stephanie and I went to um, in northeast Pennsylvania and looking out at the Pocono Mountains from that rock and just at the beginning of my senior year of college and almost being upset with God and just saying to God, like, I don't get it, Lord. I keep looking around and all these guys who are jerks have these like beautiful, amazing girlfriends and I'm single. I was single my whole senior year of college and I was like ticked about it. And I was like, I don't get it, God. And, uh, and I just remember like in that moment, him kind of like slapping me in the face with a passage from the Old Testament um, that says, don't worry when it looks like the wicked are prospering. God will judge and reward everyone at some point. And I just remember thinking in that moment, like, what am I doing? And I said to God, I was like, no more, God. Just not going to worry about it anymore. Just want you to have my whole life. Not going to spend my time worrying about if I have a girlfriend or not. And he brought me like the greatest, most beautiful girlfriend ever. She's my wife now, so I'm allowed to say that. But it's like he brought me like a blessing in that area. Those are mountaintop moments. Martin Luther had one of those in the year 1517. Anybody who's familiar with the Protestant Reformation where he felt like he had all he could take and he couldn't take anymore. And he writes this famous document called his 95 Theses and he pins them up on the church door. He said, I just can't stand by anymore and watch as church leaders abuse God's gospel. And I can't stand by anymore and act like everything's okay. It's not okay to sell forgiveness of sins to the highest bidder. And he posted on the church door and they called him a heretic for it. But it was this kind of moment where all the other things of life fade out. And if it cost me my life or if it cost me my relationship or if it cost me money or time or if it hurts my life somehow, it doesn't matter anymore. That's just the realities of life. But I'm right now zeroed in on, on the realities of God's presence and that's all that matters. It's these mountaintop moments in your life, right? And so we're going to look at one of these today. If you want to follow along in your Bible, these verses will be on the screen. But we're going to be most of the time today in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to give you some backstory. We don't have time to look at the entire account today. You would have to read about 15 to 20 chapters from Exodus to kind of get the full scope of what's going on here. I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a little bit of the backstory and then just look at a small part of this account. And uh, this, this really spans from like, I don't know, about Exodus 19 to about Exodus 
35 or 34. And so it's going to be like quite a bit of uh, content, but I'm going to try to sum that up for you. So let me, let me do that to start. So here's what's going on in this moment before we kind of dive into the text. The nation of Israel, which has just been formed, okay, has now been out of slavery in Egypt for two months, exactly. Two months. They, they have this kind of miraculous moment where God comes and shows up in Egypt and he delivers his chosen people from slavery. He does it in a supernatural way. He sends all these plagues on the Egyptians and he says to the Pharaoh or the king of Egypt, he says, you're going to let my people go and if you don't, it's going to be bad for you and he won't let them go and so God keeps unleashing these terrible plagues on them and eventually the Pharaoh says, get out of here. You know, you guys get out of here and on the way out of town, they took a bunch of the Egyptian stuff with them, which was kind of cool. And, and, and it all kind of like culminates in the Egyptian army deciding they're going to chase them down and bring them back. And they get to the Red Sea and God miraculously parts the Red Sea. Anybody that's ever seen like the Ten Commandments movie or, I don't know, a Prince of Egypt cartoon or anything like that or ever read this account next to this before, you've kind of heard this story before. And they walk through dry land across the Red Sea to get to the other side, the Sinai Peninsula, which is ironic because that's what's like all over the news right now if you're a news watcher, which I'd recommend against just for the record, watching too much cable news will make you angry. But, um, but so they cross over the Red Sea and they're in the Sinai Peninsula. So they're kind of sandwiched between Egypt and what is modern day Israel. And they're in this kind of peninsula here. And, and they've been there for two months. And that's kind of a piece of the story that would go unnoticed a lot because it's really only about a two-day walk from Egypt to what is today Israel, right? And yet somehow they're there camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They haven't really moved much. They get across the Red Sea and it's almost like they camp out for a couple months. And like, what's going on in that two months? Why not get to the land God promised you? But they're camped out there. And during that two months, God shows up and talks with Moses time and time again. And in fact, the Bible says he talks with Moses as a friend would talk with a friend. They were like pals, right? And he talks to him. And in those conversations, he gives Moses a lot of content. He gives them what we know today is the Ten Commandments, right? I don't know if they called them the Ten Commandments then. We call them the Ten Commandments today. But he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and a bunch of other commandments, and a bunch of other rules and regulations and advice, and he gives them a framework of how to create a Jewish state, how to have a government, how to have a nation, how to operate as a people moving forward. He gives all this information to Noah, or <laughs> to Noah, to Moses in these conversations over these couple months, and then Moses relays that information to all the Jews, all the people of Israel. Right? That's what's been going on, and they've been hanging out and God has been providing for all their needs. Dropping food out of the sky. And he showed up to them in this huge cloud so that they would know his presence was with them all the time. And he's talking with Moses. And so it's like this kind of two-month waiting period that really does not much has happened outside of kind of God talking with Moses and having them kind of camp out there. And, and then God's going to have a mountaintop moment with Moses. And that's what we're going to look at today. So now keep in mind, he's already given Moses all of his commandments and regulations and rules. And so a lot of times this story gets told is like Moses went to the top of the mountain to get all the commandments and rules and regulations from God. But that's not actually true. God already gave him all those verbally. But what was going to happen is Moses is going to go to the top of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and at the top, God is going to give him some stone tablets that have all these commands 
and regulations that God gave Moses verbally written down on him, and he's going to write them into the stone with his finger. I know, it's like something out of a sci-fi movie. I get it. That's what's going to happen. So he's not actually going to give Moses any new revelation on top of the mountain. He's just going to help him understand it a little better. And there's a lesson in there for us. For most of us, like God doesn't need to give us a whole lot of new revelation. He just needs us to understand the revelation he's already given us. A lot of the answers we already need are really written down for us already. He's written them with his finger into stone. And then that stone got uh, kind of transposed or transcribed into parchment. Those parchments got transposed or transcribed into paper. And then those papers got typed up and printed one day. And now here they are in our Bible. And now today, they're even typed in and they're on my phone. And I can get those same words that came from the fingertips of God onto stone, handed to Moses at the top of this mountain thousands of years ago. I get them all today. And what I need is not something new. What I need is just a better understanding of what he's already given me. And that's what's going to happen in this story. That's the mountaintop moment. That if Moses gets to the top of this mountain, there's going to be a blessing up there. There's going to be something good. But it's not going to be new content. It's going to be new perspective. It's going to be new understanding. It's going to be the same content packaged in a brand new way for him. And so uh, I want to um, look at this story with you. Just before Moses goes up the mountain, there's this conversation where he repeats again all the instructions God had given him to the people of Israel. And they're at the base of this mountain. And they all, probably about two million of them, they all in unison yell out, Yes, we will do whatever the Lord commands. And Moses says, whoa, you better be careful what you say because God is asking a lot from you here. And they're like, no, no, no. We will do whatever the Lord commands us to do. And then God shows up. And let me read you the first verse. And in this passage, I'm just going to pull out three phrases. It won't be all the truth that's in this passage, but I'm just going to pull out three phrases that I just couldn't get out of my head this week as I was studying from this text. And let's look together at Exodus chapter 24, the first verse where it starts off in verse 12. And that's this account. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. So if you're an underliner, underline that phrase. We'll come back to it in a second. Come up to me on the mountain. Stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. That phrase there, come up to me on the mountain kept like ringing true in my head this week that God is about to have this special time with Moses right he tells him only you are allowed to come leave everybody else behind just you Moses come up to me on the mountain and I'm going to give you these stone tablets and you know what I thought because I'm kind of I guess I'm just like a little cynical thinking I like I want to know why on a lot of stuff I'm like like a three-year-old I guess I'm like why you know why about everything but I'm looking at him like why why on the mountain like, couldn't a God just snapped his fingers and the tablet's been in Moses' hand? Why is he making Moses climb the mountain? Could he have not just FedExed the tablets to Moses and they showed up like in a week or two? Why is he making Moses climb this mountain to get these tablets? It seems like, and I'll kind of point this out from the context as we go forward, but it seems like God places some kind of great value on Moses getting away from all the distractions of life and getting off alone with him. Now, 
I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian anywhere in the world, any Christian, any denomination, any race, any gender, any age, any Christian, no matter what they believe, that would tell you being alone with God stinks is a bad idea for your faith. I think all of them would agree. It's like a universal Christian belief that kind of like time alone with the Lord is a good thing, right? And God seems to value that. Moses, get off by yourself up on this mountain with me. I feel like God says this exact same thing over and over to his chosen people today. Come up to me on the mountain. Draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Come get closer. Get Spend time with me. If you will spend time in the shelter of the Most High, you'll find rest under the shadow of the Almighty. God seems to value this idea of us getting away from everything and just being alone with him. And I think every Christian would buy that. So it makes us ask this question today, right? Here's the question. If we all think that that's a good thing, then why don't we do it more? Okay. Just keep that question in the back of your head for a second. I think the text is going to answer it for us. I think God's going to show us in his word why we don't get off up on the mountain more often with him. Why we don't spend more time one-on-one just with him. Let me keep going in the story. Here's the second phrase that stood out to me. It's in the next line in verse 14. Moses told the elders, stay here and wait. Stay here and wait. Now that's the line. And then the context is going to kind of like show us what, what it means. But, but stay here and wait. So just underline that one if you're an underliner. That's the second one. Come up on this mountain. Come up to me on this mountain. And he says to everybody else, stay here and wait. Okay, so let me read you the rest of that paragraph so you can hear it. Because this waiting idea is going to come up over and over again. Ready? Verse 16. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. All right, so can you see the scene in your head for a second? There's this mountain, a couple million people scattered around the base of it. God says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. Moses starts out on the mountain. He says to everyone else, stay here and wait till I come back. Stay here and wait. He goes on up the mountain. Everybody else stays at the bottom. He gets to the top of the mountain, and then God's glory kind of envelops the top of the mountain, and then the cloud comes down to cover or kind of hide a little bit of God's glory from all the rest of the people. You see it? Almost like a, like a mountain that has like a cloud at the top. You can't, 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 can't kind of see the peak of it, you know? And, and so here, I don't know if this is what it looked like or not, but I kind of Googled, and it's like one artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. So if this helps your brain a little bit, I think I got it, Yeah. So if you can see that, like, I don't know if that's what it looked like or not, but you see all the people at the bottom, and then the cloud-covered top of the mountain, and then it says when the glory of the Lord came down to the people below, it looked like a consuming fire in the cloud. You get that? So I don't know if that, in my head, it looks like something from, like, Lord of the Rings or, like, Thor Ragnarok, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I guess all the sci-fi people are my friends now, and all the other people think I'm a geek. But um, you get what I'm saying? And so I don't know if this helps or not, but that's kind of like, 
I don't know, I was trying to picture it in my head. So this is the scene that's playing out. And now Moses is up inside this cloud all by himself. And he gets up there and God's going to give him this amazing blessing, this revelation written down in stone with his fingertips. And it says, God says nothing for six days. Like Moses gets there and then there's no word from God. Moses is just chilling for six days. And I'm like, why? Again, why? Why didn't God just give it to him right away? What's going on in the six days? And then beyond that, you have all these people down at the bottom, and they're waiting, and they have no clue why it's taken six days, right? And then when God finally does speak to Moses, and he gives him these tablets, then it says Moses stays there another 40 days. Now, if you're the people at the bottom of the mountain, the only instruction you've got is like, wait here, I'll be back. And then you see that. And you're probably thinking, like, is Moses dead? Like, what's going on up there? It's been a month and a half. Like, where is he? Is there anything happening up there? Confusion. Everybody's in a waiting game. And I wrote that, like, I underlined that line in my Bible, that stay here and wait, because I thought, man, you know what we don't like to do? Wait for anything. Nothing. We don't like that. It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient. But Moses, I don't know if you grew up in church like me, like maybe you heard like some preacher say this one time, like when you pray, the Lord answers every prayer in one of three ways. Anybody ever hear that before? Like sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait, right? Yeah, sometimes he says wait. Like, ah, I'd almost rather him say no than wait. Like I just want some closure. Don't just make me wait. But because it's hard to wait. And so I'm asking myself all these questions as I'm studying this passage. What is Moses doing for six days? And maybe better yet, what is God doing for six days? Like, is he busy? He doesn't have time for me. What am am I thinking in this moment if I'm Moses? And it kind of got me thinking, like, what are you waiting on God for? Maybe a better question for you would be, what aren't you waiting on God for? This is that part of the church service where you're going to have your boots on, okay, because this offended me when I was studying, so it might offend you too. Sorry for that. We're just going to teach the truth no matter what. Is that okay? But God says abstinence outside of marriage, but instead of waiting, I take sex. God says spend only what you have, but instead of waiting, I take debt. Turn the other cheek when someone does me wrong. Work hard at everything you do as if you're working for the Lord. Serve one another. Do my own homework. Respect the authorities God has put in my life. But why would I do any of those things when I could just take matters into my own hands? Why would I slow down and wait for any of that stuff when I could just make it happen right now, Lord? Why would I wait when I can work it all out on my own? And then you get more waiting, 40 more days. And you're like, what's going on at the top of the mountain? Now, here's here's what I know from the context. Because you don't get any, like, specific detail what was happening up there during those 47 days. But here's what I know from the context. When this all wraps up over in, like, chapter 32 or 33 or something like that of Exodus, Moses comes back down off the mountain for the last time, and his face is shining. The text says, because he had seen and spent time with God. 
So the answer to what was happening on the mountain for 47 days, you ready? It was worship. Now, now, now there's nothing said about a song because that gets confused in church today too. Like worship isn't singing. Singing can be worship, but worship isn't singing. You can sing and not be worshiping. I've listened to all kinds of bands and artists in my life that don't sound like they're worshiping, but they're singing. I know people in church that sing all the right words, but probably aren't worshiping. Worship is something different. Here's my, I don't know, kind of two-cent definition for the word worship. I've used this kind of my whole life, but like worship is giving God everything I am because of everything he is. Now, I don't have to be singing to do that. I could be at work tomorrow giving God everything I have, everything I am because of everything he is, right? I could be waking my kids up out of bed. I could be out playing golf. I could be in the garage working on the car. I could be at the grocery store shopping for groceries, and I can worship because in that moment, I can give God everything I've got. I could be on the lookout for somebody to share my faith with. I can be kind to somebody that's treating me like, a, like I'm a piece of dirt. I can, I can take my money and leverage it for eternity, or I can selfishly use it for myself. I can worship in anything of life that I'm doing, or I cannot worship. And that's what's going on on the top of this mountain. I don't know what's being said or how it's playing out or what Moses is doing or thinking, but somehow he's worshiping. And when he comes back down, it's been such a good experience in the presence of God that he's literally glowing to the people who see him. It's worship. And the reason, the reason that God wants us to wait so often in life is because waiting is where worship happens the best. Waiting invites worship. Waiting invites me to say, okay, there's nothing you can do about it right now. If you're gonna trust God, you just have to be patient. So while you're waiting, give him everything you got and see if it doesn't work out. And and here's the problem. The reason You know, the question I asked you before, like, why don't we spend more time with God? Why don't we get off alone more and worship God one-on-one? Here's why. You ready? We don't want to wait. We're too busy. We're too stressed. And we have way too many important things to do to get alone on the mountaintop with the Lord. And while waiting invites worship, what we tend to do when we have to wait for anything is not worship, We tend to whine. And while waiting invites worship, whining prevents worship. Okay, now now let me tell you what's going on in the chapters that we aren't going to be able to read this morning, okay? Moses is up on the mountain, all the people down below. He's up there worshiping. Guess what they're all doing down below? They're all whining. And, and I don't know how many days it took, okay, because the text doesn't tell us. But for 47 days, they're down there without any word of what's going on on the mountain. And at some point, they start to complain. They start to say things like, I guess God can't be trusted after all. I guess he's abandoned us again. I guess he's nowhere to be found. Moses probably never coming back. And their whining prevents them from worshiping. 
and they whine long enough that they decide, just like we do, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So they collect everybody's jewelry in the country. Everybody has gold, gives it to them. They melt it all down. They take that melted gold and they create a, a statue out of it. They melt it down and they make this golden calf statue and they set it up in front of them and then they start worshiping it. Why would I wait for that guy? I can worship this guy. Now, I get it. You're not melting down your gold and making a calf and worshiping it. But are we really any different? Do we not whine when we have to wait? Do we not get sick and tired of waiting and decide to take matters into our own hands? This is what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. And God knows it. And he's going to tell Moses to go down there and take care of it. And in chapter 32, this is the conversation between God and Moses. The Lord told Moses in verse 7, the Lord, Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought, I love that. It's like, it's like God plays like the parent thing on him. It's like it's your kids when they're doing something bad. He's like, the people that your people, <laughs> he says to Moses, like, aren't they your people, God? It's like your people who you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And then here's the third phrase in verse 8. He says, how quickly they have turned away. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we might look at that and think, that's insane. It's only been a couple months. How could you possibly think that golden calf rescued you from slavery? How could you possibly trust your melted down jewelry over the master of the universe? How could you get to that point? And it happened because they got sick and tired of waiting. And so they started whining and they stopped worshiping. Take the calf out of it. Take the gold out of it. Is that not us? I get sick and tired of waiting. And so I start whining and I stop worshiping. Hey, we watch it all the time in our church. How many people at our church, Kenny, have come through the doors and get fired up about Jesus? They're standing at the bottom of the mountain yelling out, I'll obey anything the Lord commands. You better be careful what you agree to. He's going to ask a lot of you. He's going to ask you to give up your whole life for him. I'll do it. Whatever he says, I'm in 100%. Until they get sick of waiting for a girlfriend and they start whining and they stop worshiping and they settle for somebody who hates God until they really need that new truck and God won't show up with it and so they start whining and then they stop worshiping and then they get alone until they get sick and tired of waiting and they start griping and complaining and they stop worshiping. And all of a sudden, the same person that loved everything about three strands and was all in for Jesus and wanted a serving role and couldn't miss a life group, now you can't even get them on their phone. 
Now everything they say is how screwed up we are. And the pastor's a jerk and doesn't dress right. I know, I don't dress right. I get it. They say all kinds of garbage about us then. They used to love us and now they hate us. They used to love him and now they're just angry. What happened? They didn't melt down any jewelry. They didn't make a golden calf. They just got sick of waiting for what they wanted. So they started whining and stopped worshiping. Is this not the exact same pattern we follow? I did change one word in that because I feel like God would be okay with that. I don't think it's good to change words in God's Bible. But, but this one word I did change because he said how quickly they have turned away. And I feel like we need to hear today how quickly have we turned away. Is this one thing to stand here and bash all the Israelites for what they did? But are we any different? What are you not waiting on the Lord for? When have you been taking instead of waiting? Where have you acted with selfish impatience and taken matters into your own hands? Is it your sexuality? Is it your academics? Is it your career, your hobbies, your finances, your relationships, your time? Is it getting off on the mountain with God often? I don't got time for that. I'm not waiting for that any longer. I'll handle this all on my own. See, people around here, people around here, they're all saying they'll do everything the Lord commands. They're all saying they're a Christian. But they're faking it. They're not worshiping. They're just whining can't find any passage in God's word where he's like, get out there and complain a lot. But so much of Christianity today is just griping about all the stuff you hate. I can't stand it when they do this at my church. I can't stand it when the preacher says this. I can't. They challenge me too much. It's too much fluff. It's never enough. Man, I get that all the time at our church. Come on. This isn't like a global church problem. This is a 3SC problem. I've shared this with our church before. In the same week one time, I got accused of loving gay people too much. In the very same week, I got accused of hating them too much. I was like, how can it be both? Because people were just griping about everything. I had somebody two weeks ago tell me, I would take on a serving role if you guys had more roles to choose from. Get out of here. I've been in like 10 churches my whole life. I've never been in a church that has more serving roles than our church. You can literally do almost anything you're good at and we'll make it a serving role at this church. Just griping about everything. There aren't enough seats. The air's too cold. The air's too hot. Everybody's upset about everything anymore. It's like, man, what if we just worshiped? You know? Uh, we were reading this passage a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter, what chapter was that in? Hebrews chapter 5, about how like people refuse to grow up in their faith. And I was like, if I got up in front of our church and said those exact same words, didn't, didn't read them from the Bible, because like if they're from the Bible, everybody's like, that's cool, God said it, you know, all that. But if I just said exactly what that passage in Hebrews 5 said, without telling anybody it was from the Bible, a third of our church would just leave, they'd be so upset. They'd be so hurt and offended if I just said those exact same words that the writer of Hebrews was saying to Christians at that time. I had to preamble it so you wouldn't get so upset if you're one of those people. But what he said was like, you're all acting like babies. 
You ought to be further along in your faith by now. I shouldn't have to beg you to follow Jesus. You've been a Christian so long, he says, you ought to be teaching others about the faith, and yet I still have to spoon feed you milk like a baby. You can't even talk to Christians like that today. Or they'll run and go to another church. Or they'll go out in the community and bash you on Facebook because you're the hating church. But it's like, man, aren't we guilty of the exact same things today? And we just buy into this like, well, as long as I say I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But, but really, we're just whining. And, and here's kind of the, I don't know, the secret maybe everybody's not in on. You ready? Jesus, he's looking for followers. He's looking for followers in a world full of phonies. And there are a lot of phonies. And they know all the right Christian things to say. And they've prayed the perfect prayer, the the magic prayer that gets you out of hell that somebody told them to pray when they were seven. And that makes them, boom, puff, magic. Everything's okay the rest of my life now because I said all the magic words. And they shout out, I'll obey all the commands of the Lord until I get sick of waiting. And then I'll take what I want. I had somebody a couple weeks ago tell me they weren't coming back to our church because we told them it was wrong to have sex with their boyfriend. I don't know. Am I supposed to lie to you now? You can't even tell people the truth anymore? You have to just lie to them or they get so upset they leave? Are they a Christian? Are you a Christian? Does that make you a Christian if you say you're a Christian? But you get to do whatever you feel like doing? Man, be careful before you say, I'll do whatever God says. I'll obey every command. Are you a follower or a phony? Which will you be? So let me ask you, what complaints do you need to confess? What relationships do you need to walk away from? Which purchases do you need to sell or return? Which family members do you need to apologize to? What step of real faithful worship do you need to take? You don't need me to tell you. I found most people usually know. They usually know where they've been going their own way and disobeying God. Why would I do any of that? Why would I choose to worship God and wait on him instead of whining and taking matters into my own hands? Why would I do any of that? There's only one reason you should do that. You ready? Because Jesus died for you. That's it. The only reason that I should give up everything I am because of everything he is, is because he died for me. He took my place. All the punishment I deserve, he took it on himself. All, all the, the criticism and the condemnation and the judgment and the wrath of God that I deserved, he said, give it to me and I'll take all the punishment that guy deserves. I'll die in his place. And then he came back from the dead. And showed that he had power even over the worst of everything. Even over death. He came back to life. That's it. You shouldn't follow Jesus if he didn't come back from the dead. That's the only reason I follow him. Paul said if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, then everything else about the faith is worthless. It's all just a dead religion. 
What makes Christianity different, what makes Jesus worth being followed is that he died in my place and came back from the dead. And now he looks at me and says, come up on the mountain with me and I will bless you. Wait on me and you will learn how to worship. I will give you peace. I will give you comfort. I will give you eternity in heaven. I will give you more than you could ever hope for or imagine in exchange for all that you are. That's it. That's why you should do it. What is it you've been whining about that you need to confess? What is it you haven't been waiting on God for but been doing it your own way that you need to confess? What is it you need to commit to today to do differently from this point forward? I want to leave you with one verse from Isaiah chapter 64. The prophet Isaiah writes this perfect like summation of why we should wait. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says this, For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you, a God like you, who works for those who wait for you. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. There's worship to take place while you're waiting to get out of school while you're waiting to find the perfect person, while you're waiting to have more money, while you're waiting to get that thing you've always wanted, while you're waiting to take that vacation, don't get impatient. Don't start whining. Don't, start wor- don't stop worshiping. And don't take matters into your own hands. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. It's worth the wait. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for the clarity of your word and the clarity of mountaintop moments. Would you just shower the room right now with extra courage, God? Because it takes courage to wait. It takes courage to worship. When everybody else is acting impatiently, when everybody else is racking up debt and sleeping around, when everybody else is blowing their top and getting angry at anybody they want to, when everybody else is giving all that they have to their hobbies and their sports teams and their favorite things to do for fun, would you give us the courage to be people who will wait and worship? Would you give the people in our room right now, God, eyes to see and ears to hear the blessing that awaits them if they will wait on you? The blessing that is going to stare them in the eye at the end of time when you look at us and you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. When you look at us and say, I saw you worshiping me. When everybody else was choosing selfishness and everybody else was choosing impatience, I saw you waiting. I saw you worshiping me. Would you give the people in our room right now the courage to make those kind of confessions and those kind of commitments to you today, God? Would you change us so that we can walk out of here new, different than when we walked in? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's word for all of us. We hope you start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. Be sure to subscribe to the 3SC podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.